your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10, as we look at God's Word together, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. A few weeks ago, I was walking um, through the living room of our house, and I began to hear a strange but familiar song. It went something like this. It's a beautiful day to be in a neighborhood. A be- you, 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 you starting a beautiful day for a neighbor. I can't hear you up there in the gathering. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I, I thought I had found a familiar song for a moment. And I, I began to, I thought this is a thing that both my daughter who is three and I can enjoy together. You know, there are not many things that you can just enjoy together, you know, but this one I could because that song seems so familiar. So I sat down, I stopped for a moment and I looked at the television and I noticed that it was a cartoon. Animation, okay? Daniel the Tiger. Any of you been introduced to Daniel the Tiger? Those of you who have children, and uh, yes, you know, Daniel. So I, I began to sit down. I sat down and I began to listen to this and see what was going on. You, you understand these days, that's about the depth of my theology sometimes. You know, Daniel the Tiger, because of my kids and the way things are. But I, I began thinking, now, this song is so familiar, but I don't remember animation. I don't remember Daniel. I don't remember tigers. I don't remember all these things. What in the world? And and I began to process it. I began to process it. That when I was younger, yes, I was transported back to those days. Sitting right there in a living room in a home there in North Mississippi on Birmingham Ridge. Where this guy came on. He would actually walk into the house. He would uh, go to his closet. He would change into his sweater. Then he would change his shoes. Some of you remember this? And he would invite us to be his neighbor. Now, his name was? Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. For 40 years or so, Mr. Rogers was on television inviting us to be his neighbor. And perhaps like you, or perhaps like me, we enjoyed being the neighbor of Mr. Rogers. Or at least our children did, or our grandchildren did. We enjoy just being his neighbor. Mr. Rogers would extend that invitation over and over. He was, he was a Presbyterian minister, but yet he had this television program that impacted children and others for years and years and years. I've often thought about that, this idea of being a neighbor. And yet, Jesus himself had to fill questions about our neighbors and who would be our neighbor. And that's what we find in this very familiar passage in Luke 10. Probably one of the most recognized stories in all of the scripture. You find Jesus speaking about who our neighbor really is. Beginning in verse 25, it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So here we have this setting that Jesus is basically been teaching he's been speaking and at some point this lawyer stands up and he says hey jesus got a question for you notice here they are trying to insert as many gotcha questions as they could 
almost as if they were moderating a presidential debate, right? The lawyer is there and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Hoping that in some way that he would embarrass Jesus or perhaps he would catch Jesus in some kind of trap that he could be criticized for. What must I do? And I love the way Jesus responds. It says in verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Jesus basically says, hey, you're the lawyer. You're the one that's supposed to have the answer. So what does the law say? If you're the one who can study it and quote it, you tell me what the law says. Well, he answered, the lawyer did, and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He says, I understand that there are two great commandments love God and love my neighbor and that's what I am supposed to do and Jesus said to him you've answered rightly do this and you will live he said you've quoted some very good scripture those are the great commandments you do this you will experience life verse 29 notice again the moderator just cannot take the answer that he has given Rather, he, he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And that is the question. Now, understand that as you read the story that Jesus is going to give, he is not addressing simply the path to salvation or the path to eternal life. When sometimes people read this, and they hear the initial question that the lawyer asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Some people think that Jesus is embracing a works-oriented salvation, that in other words, you've got to do all these good things and all of this will happen. No, Jesus is not doing that. Now, the lawyer, the Jewish lawyer, he believed that there was something that had to be done. I didn't mention this, but in that question, what must I do? That is in the tense that signifies that there was a specific moment. He thought there was something that he had to do specifically in order to inherit eternal life. He had to work in some way. That was, of course, the Jewish ethic. Jesus is not embracing that ethic. He is not saying that if you just simply do good, you'll be saved. That's not what Jesus is saying here in, this, in these verses. As a matter of fact, he will point out through the law and through this story that this man is falling short of God's commands. He'll actually demonstrate how this lawyer was not embracing the true love God and love your neighbor. He'll talk about how this man, even in his own attitudes, is falling short of the glory of God because that's what the law teaches us and shows us, right? When we go back to the law and we study it, we see how we fall short of the glory of God. You and I could never be good enough. That's what I'm saying. We can never attain the, the obedience necessary to have 100% holiness in our lives. So understand when Jesus is about to tell this story, he is not trying to tell how to inherit eternal life. Rather, what he is answering is the question specifically, who is my neighbor? And through this story, he is going to demonstrate how even this lawyer is falling short of the glory of God. So get this. This is the story that Jesus gives. Question comes, and Jesus says, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. So he answers, and he said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves 
who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? So Jesus gives the story. You want to know who a neighbor is? Let me just tell you this story. And the story is about this man, presumably a Jewish man, who was on his way down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It says he was going down. Now, if you read the New Testament, every time somebody leaves Jerusalem, they're going down. doesn't matter whether they're going north, south, east, or west. You always go down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem is such a high point. He goes down upon this road some 17 miles long between Jerusalem and Jericho. It falls about 3,000 feet in altitude. As he goes down, he encounters these thieves. Well, you would know that the roads of those days could be dangerous. All kinds of things could happen. And so Jesus uses this daily occurrence or this practical application to somehow speak about what a neighbor is. So as the man goes down, as he is walking, it says that he falls among thieves, that there are people who come out, they, they rob him. It says that they beat him. You, you can imagine they're coming at him from the right. They're coming at him from the left. They throw the football uh, into the end zone. Uh, they leave them half dead. I mean, just there on the field. That was the Alabama Ole Miss game right last night, right? I'm sorry. I had to. I got to get it in. You knew I had to get it in. And I worked on it. I know it wasn't a smooth transition, but at least I got it in. It says that this man, he walks down, he's on this road, and he falls among thieves, which would be perhaps a daily occurrence. And it says that they rob him, they take everything that he has, they wound him, and literally they leave him half dead. That's what the scripture says. That's what Jesus says in the story. They leave him half dead. So Jesus builds the story and the anticipation. He inserts two individuals, the priest and the Levite. Now, again, these are likely candidates to be heroes, at least in the Jewish mindset. If you're going to have a hero in a story, you would, might, you would know it would be like a priest or maybe a Levite. A priest well, of course, a priest has been called by God, set aside by God, is serving God, is ministering to the people on behalf of God. He is a priest. And the Levite. Well, the Levite is not necessarily a priest. I, I, I read some things because so many people have questions about this. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Some Levites who would come, they would... They would be able to help the priest. They, they would be able to serve for a certain amount of time in the, in the temple. And they would be able to even touch the holy furniture, which was forbidden by so many. They could help around the temple. 
So again, if you're going to have a hero, you might want to have a hero who is a priest or a Levite. In today's terms, and I know these are loose terms and you have to be careful about that, but in these days, you might say, if you want somebody to show compassion and be the hero, maybe it's the preacher or the deacon. The preacher or the deacon. In some way, you would think, you would hope that a preacher would demonstrate some type of grace, right? You may be standing in need of grace one day. You might ought to say amen. I'll remember you expected me to at that point. Maybe a preacher, or maybe a deacon. In some way, these are people that you look up to, perhaps, people that the church has recognized, that God has recognized, and you would think they would be the heroes. And that's the same idea as in the New Testament day, that when Jesus inserts these two, you would think that they would be the heroes of the story, at least one of them. This is what it says. It says, now by chance, in other words, it just so happened that a certain priest came down that road. Perhaps he had just finished up his ministry at the temple there in Jerusalem. Maybe he was going down to Jericho as well. It says, he comes down that road. And when he saw him, Jesus said that he simply passed by on the other side. He simply passed by on the other side. Now, so many people have tried to find a reason behind that, and we don't know exactly the reason. Maybe it, maybe it was inconvenience. Maybe it related to issues over impurity. Perhaps it did. I mean, you got to think of it in this day and time. The priest would have come by, would have seen the man over there half dead. Perhaps, perhaps he just presumed he might be dead. says he was half dead. Maybe he presumed he was dead. And according, according to the laws we find in the book of Leviticus, if this priest would have gone over and would have tried to even help him or touch him and he already had been dead, then that meant, well, that meant impurity. In other words, that priest would have to go back. He would have to uh, go through the ceremonial cleansing. He would have to do wait so many days. He'd have to do all that the law required him. So, look, here he is. He's, he's coming home. And I'm sure it's been a tough day. You know, he's been up there at the temple, and he was serving, and he was working. Just in that, that in of itself is, could be a tough day, right? It can be for preachers sometimes. It'd be a tough day just serving and working. Maybe he was just tired. Maybe he was. He was thinking to himself, you know, I just don't want to stop right now. Or, or... Perhaps he was just concerned that, hey, I, I get down here and I become unclean. I've got to go all the way back up to Jerusalem. I've got to go back and I've got to go through the cleansing process and I'm going to have to wait. And you know how that's going to put a damper on my Sunday lunch or Saturday lunch. I, I mean, if, if, if I do this, it's going to inconvenience me. Now, you and I can beat up this priest very easily. We can look at him with disdain. But may I suggest that there are many times in our lives that we allow inconvenience to, de or inconvenience to decide whether we will help or not. 
I'll never forget. I was there in Pine Grove. I had been preaching on this very subject, on helping individuals. And I really believe that I was preaching or at least mentioned the parable of the Good Samaritan. So what happened? Well, my family, or at that point it was Leslie and, and I think Abigail, we got into the car and we started heading on because we were supposed to be somewhere for a lunch that day. Back in the good old days, your parishioners took you out to lunch Sunday, <laughs> or at least to your home. So I said, I'm supposed to be there. And it was one of those afternoons. It was one of those afternoons where I knew I had to be there. And I had to be eating. And then I had to be back at the church for a deacon's meeting or a committee meeting. It was going to be a long day. I knew it was going to be. So when we started out, we started going down Walkout Bluff Road. And when I looked over, well, one of my blasted church members. They didn't, well, they didn't stay on the road like they should, but they had allowed their tire to just kind of drop off in one of those areas out there, and when it did, it just knocked knocked the tire off of the wheel. I just preached on this. I was like, God, why? Are you saying I got to stop? I'll be honest. I was like, I got so many other things to do today. And now I'm going to have to stop just because they know I preached on this this morning. <laughs> and and I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't have the right attitude about it. We got out, and yes, I probably smiled with my teeth clenched. And not that I could help, don't get me wrong. I don't know much about tires or putting tires back on or all that, but I was able to get in touch with some folks and we were there with them and we helped inconvenience can drive our day if we're not careful or at least our attitude to try to avoid inconvenience and hearing the priest he he walks by on the other side almost to say i hope i hope i don't even begin to get close enough to this individual where it will affect my impurity or my day or anything else. I I just can't deal with this. I don't want to deal with this. I'm just going to keep going on. I'm just not going to look. Well, verse 32 says the Levite comes by. Well, if if you've been failed by your pastor or your preacher or your priest, you hope you're a layman. Your deacon might help. Well, and it does seem, I hate to say this because some of my deacons will remind me of this, but it does seem like he did a little more than the preacher did because it said when he arrived at the place, he came and looked, almost like he took a little extra look. He was probably trying to decide if the preacher had done this before he came by or something like that. Or maybe he was thinking, we got to call a committee meeting and try to fill out, fill out what was going on. But it says he passed by on the other side. Verse 33. But a certain Samaritan A certain Samaritan, 
Do you understand how offensive even that word was to this Jewish audience? Now, perhaps they believe that this Samaritan is going to follow the same example as the priest and the Levite. And perhaps they're giving Jesus the benefit of the doubt, at least here in the beginning when they initially hear the word. But it says, a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. I went and looked at that word once again, that word had compassion in the original Greek. It is in the passive voice, which means that it wasn't necessarily that he activated compassion. It was as, it's as though the compassion activated him. Think about that a moment. It wasn't like he said, oh yeah, I've got to turn my compassion on now to somehow deal with this situation. It was as though compassion itself was working upon him in his heart and his life. As he saw this individual, compassion consumed him and compelled him to do something. He was overwhelmed with compassion. Again, the tense of that verb would say that it occurred in this dramatic, decisive, distinctive moment in his life. In other words, as soon as he saw this, the compassion filled him at that point and it, and it motivated him. It moved him to do something. A lot of us are good at pity, but not many of us perhaps are good at compassion. What do you mean by that? Well... Many of us can feel sorry for somebody. We can have pity upon somebody. Many of us can. I mean, even the toughest of hearts can feel kind of sorry for somebody. But may I suggest to you that pity never helps anyone. Well, you may feel good about yourself because you were actually touched, but I'm just saying to you that pity itself, feeling sorry for someone, never really changes anything. But compassion, compassion, being overwhelmed with love, being overwhelmed with the sensitivity to others' needs, compassion, it does change things. Because compassion says you don't just look and keep going. Compassion says you stop and you do something. Again, many of us live in this culture today where it's all about pity. Oh, yeah, we feel bad about that. That seems bad. That, uh, we hate to hear that. Compassion says, what can you do to make a difference? Compassion embraces action. See, love is action, isn't it? True love. It is active. It's not just saying that you love somebody. Or it's not just thinking in your head that you love somebody, act, true, genuine love takes action on another's behalf. Ask God. Because God did not say, simply say that he loved you. God demonstrated that he loved you when he sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God didn't just look down at us in our sin and say, oh, I feel so bad for them. They're there, they're flailing around, they're, they're enslaved to their sin. I just feel bad for them. God didn't just say that. 
God took action on our behalf, action that we could have never taken ourselves. He took the initiative to send Jesus to die upon the cross and to be resurrected the third day so that if we had faith and trust in him, we could have salvation and we could know what freedom was. We could know what life was. We could know the hope of eternity in our lives. True compassion and love requires action. And this Samaritan had compassion. He took action. It said he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. He took care of him. It says on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, said to him, take care of him, whatever more you spend when I come again, I'll repay you. Notice he not only did what was necessary, he went above and beyond. Not only did he take care of his physical wounds at the moment and take him to this innkeeper, but he said, whatever it takes, you just charge it to my account. He went over and above. I entitled this sermon series a while back, Tough words to hear. Tough words to hear. And if you were to think about this passage in that context, some of you may say, what's so tough about hearing that? I mean, that, that this guy was compassionate to another individual. What's so tough? I mean, that sounds like the way we should embrace life, and, and it is the way we should embrace life. But some of you probably are trying to work through that moment of difficulty. How, how would that be offensive to anybody? That's because we are so far removed from that New Testament culture, that first century world. It was very, it was very offensive to the Jewish audience to hear that all of a sudden Jesus had elevated a Samaritan to be a hero. Now, I know not many of you like history lessons, but I'm going to give you a history lesson, okay? Just for a moment, it'd probably take me about four minutes. So if some of y'all need to do something else, that's fine. You can do whatever you need to do on your phone or whatever. Those of you who are serious about biblical study and don't want to be called out, listen to me this morning, okay? Why was there so much tension between the Samaritans and the Jews? I mean, we've heard it. I grew up hearing the Jews hated the Samaritans. Samaritans hated the Jews. Why? I mean... I read over in, in the Old Testament, and when I close the Old Testament, I don't even really see much about Samaritans. What happened? Well, you'll remember that at one time in the life of the nation, as it was moving away from God after Solomon's reign, the nation was actually divided. Northern kingdom, Israel. Southern kingdom, Judah. And the two warred back and forth, and they sought their own uh, agendas for so long until finally God had had enough of the ungodliness of that northern kingdom. And what did he do? He brought the nation of Assyria down. Totally destroyed them. Totally destroyed that northern kingdom. Some of you today might hear people talk about the ten lost tribes of Israel. The ten lost tribes. What happened to them? Well, basically... As Assyria would come in, as their, as their policies dictated, they would take some of these people, they would 
They would move them around the empire. They would take other people from the empire and bring them in to repopulate the area. They were trying to assimilate everybody into the Assyrian culture. You'll see it described for you, I think, in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 24, of where they would come and they would, they would try to repopulate that area so that they, everybody would kind of be the same. They would break down the old cultures and bring in a new culture that would represent the Assyrian Empire. So there in that northern kingdom, you had all of this, you had all of this commingling, repopulation. And before you knew it, well, that northern kingdom up there, according to the Jews, they were less than Jews. That group up there, half-breeds. Well, you remember later on, Babylon will come in and they will... Uh, they will enslave, they will destroy Jerusalem and the temple, and they will take so many back to Babylon there from the southern kingdom. You'll remember some of that. And again, that southern kingdom was called Judah or Judea, which gives us this idea of the Jew. And when they come back, after God works mercifully upon King Cyrus, and they come back, they come back to Jerusalem and they find it, in disrepair and they start building they start working but then they get to looking around and they realize that now basically in the south is where you have those who are purely jews those up north they've been compromised in their race they've been compromised even in their religion at some point they had even written their own pentateuch at some point they'd even established a temple at mount gerizim and there was a Distinction now between Jew and Samaritan. And the Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jews felt like they were half-breeds. And you remember even in Luke chapter 9, which is only a chapter before this, that Jesus had been rejected by a Samaritan village. And what did James and John want to do? The old disciples, the sons of thunder, they wanted to call down the fire of God upon them and destroy them. The disciples wanted to do that. Hey, Jesus... Hey, do you want, us, you want us to pull an Elijah on them? That's really what they say. Because if you do, we can bring out some miracles, miracles of Elijah and we'll just go ahead and we'll just exterminate this village right now. You want us to do that? That was the hatred that Jews had for the Samaritans. It is said that even if the shadow of a Samaritan would pass, you had to wash your hands as a Jew to cleanse yourself. From the filth of the Samaritan. Do you see now why it would be offensive to a Jewish audience that Jesus would elevate a Samaritan above the religious leadership, the religious workers of the day? And it also reminds us of how God has called us to cross over such barriers in order to demonstrate compassion and love. Because the question then, Jesus asked, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? In other words, who's the neighbor? Well, verse 37, the lawyer could not even say the word Samaritan. Know this, see this. And I'm sure that even in his answer, he must have been seething. He must have said something like, He who showed mercy on him. 
Because it would have done everything, it would have required everything that this lawyer had to even speak of a Samaritan in such terms. Well, I guess, Jesus, if, if you got to force me, if you, it's got to be the Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Again, what Jesus does here in saying, go and do likewise, he uses an emphatic form to say something like, you go and you yourself, you, I'm talking to you, lawyer, you, you go do what God has called you to do. And you show compassion on other individuals. Because the question, the question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, will I be a neighbor? Or the question will be, will you be my neighbor? Will we be the neighbors that we should be? Because neighbors, listen, the neighbor is not just that person who lives right next door to you. Your neighbor is not just the individual that's located in that subdivision. Your neighbor is not just folks who are here in Ruston. Your neighbor should be anybody and everybody that you come in contact with, that you demonstrate the love and the compassion that God has demonstrated to you and that you project that in their lives. And I'm one of the very ones to be careful about being too allegorical or symbolical But my friends, my friends, those of us who are saved here in this place, were we not beaten up by this world? Were we not left half dead by the sin? Well, never mind. Were we not just simply dead in our sin? And Jesus saw us and loved us. And demonstrated compassion. As though he were mending our wounds. Paying our debt. If Jesus could do such for us. How much does he call us to do for others? If God would do so much for us. Think of how he would call us. And speak to us to demonstrate grace and compassion to other individuals we come in contact with. No matter what they look like, no matter what they talk like, no matter who they are. That's a tall order, isn't it? I said to you earlier, I struggle with inconvenience. I will tell you that I struggle also in my personal life of just loving the unlovable. I struggle with that. And yet... When I recognized that God loved the unlovable me, the sinner that I was, even before, well, even before I was saved, he loved me while I was still a sinner. It motivates me to demonstrate grace and mercy and compassion and love to others. And I want you to think this morning, as God calls you, that person, that individual, that group of individuals that maybe you harbor aught in your heart about, Would God challenge you, God speak to you to demonstrate compassion and love in every situation? May we be the people who love God with all of our hearts. May we be people who would love our neighbor as ourselves. Would we be the people of compassion? Will we be 
the neighbor that God has called us to be. Let's pray together. Father, we bless your name this morning and we are thankful for the grace and the mercy that you have demonstrated to us. And God, in this place, I pray that that grace and that mercy would overwhelm us this morning. And God, you would help us to be people of compassion, mercy to others. Lord, no matter what they look like, no matter what they talk like, Father, no matter who they are, may we be the people. May we be your children who demonstrate grace. God, I pray that today you would convict us and you would allow us to just walk in your ways and follow you in every way possible. Be with us during this invitation. Speak to us now. In Jesus' name.